0: the power of their data wasabi, another Boston based championship team. You're listening to the MLB.com StatCast podcast.
1: Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Should be a really fun show this week. We've got a couple of really cool guests coming up a little bit later. Corey Brock, MLB.com San Diego Padres beat writer. Right now, someone I've been wanting to talk to for a really long time. Kyle Bodie, president and founder of Driveline Baseball, author of three books on pitching, doing some really cool stuff uh, in the suburbs of Seattle on how to keep pitchers healthy, how to get them to throw harder. Kyle, how are you tonight?
2: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Mike.
1: Kyle, I want to start with a couple of, uh, let's say, mottos or slogans that I, I found on your website and doing a little bit of research for this. The first one is, throw harder and reduce your injury risk. And the second is, rest is atrophy. Uh, yeah. And I think those are both pretty cool because throw harder and reduce your injury risk. You wouldn't think those two things would mix together. And also you wouldn't think that saying rest is maybe not the best thing for a pitcher would make sense. Tell me, how do you mix all that to uh, success for your, your clients?
2: Well, the first slogan is really, you know, a lot of I think with baseball, we've we've really succumbed to this safety first mentality. And while, you know, we're huge on recovery and you know, work with a lot of physical therapists and orthopedic surgeons, um, what we found is that most people's training goes completely backwards. You know, it's very difficult to put someone on the mound in the ninth inning on the 110 pitches and expect them to expend maximum effort to get hitters out like, you know, John Carlos Stanton or, or, you know, Mike Trout, uh, and then train in a very understated way. You know, that to us is very irresponsible. You know, they need to be training at those maximum outputs as much as they can while paying attention to that recovery. Um, and then that leads to the second slogan, which is rest is atrophy. You know, a lot of guys have just been really, you know, pushing that we should rest all the time and not throw. And while I'm all on board with guys taking, you know, two to six to eight weeks off in the off offseason um, from throwing, I totally understand that. Uh, The season is extremely long, and they really need to have their arm as top-shaped as as they can. If they're going to throw 200 innings to the quality of hitters that exist today, uh, there's just no pitches you can take off in the game. So the offseason should be treated much the
1: same. So you had a a tweet a couple of days ago that I I thought was really interesting, so I'm going to read it right here. Uh, Your words. If you always train for max safety, never go balls out and throwing, and then need to throw your best, best fastball by a hitter, do you think that's safe? And I thought that was really interesting because it really just goes back to, if you're not training for that kind of maximum effort, how can you expect to get it across in the game?
2: Absolutely. You know, and that's what, that's what we see. You know, the people saw the video of a guy like Casey Weathers throwing 106 miles an hour from a crow hop, and they say, oh, my goodness, that's not safe and that's not useful. But the reality is, is Casey has had two Tommy John surgeries in the past and was throwing 88 to 90 miles an hour in spring training a year ago. Uh, We got him signed with the Indians, and he was sitting 95 to 97, touching 100, and he's in a much better spot now. He's had the best year in his career. His walk rates are career low, and his velocity has never been better since college. Um, and it just takes a different type of mentality and a different type of training to get the best out of guys because you can't stick them on the mound and expect that maximum output. If it hasn't been displayed in training, they don't even have the confidence, much less the physical ability to do it.
1: Well, You're stealing the latter half of my script here because I was absolutely going to bring up Casey Weathers because... (laughs) Sorry about that. No, no problem. I think he's fascinating. For people who don't know who Casey Weathers is, he was the 8th overall pick in 2007 by Colorado, 2 picks ahead of Madison Bumgarner, 7 picks ahead of Jason Hayward. Obviously a very highly touted prospect. Didn't work out for him. Never made it even to Triple A, hasn't pitched above Double uh, A, out his arm a couple times, didn't pitch at all in 2009, didn't pitch at all in 2013. Uh, all these years later, he's still getting after it, and uh, you know he, he's obviously come to Drive Line to try to rebuild himself. And I, I was reading a, uh, a blog post that you did about Casey, and I, I thought it was really interesting. He comes to you the first day. And uh, you basically say, well, we're gonna—we're not starting slow, right? We're gonna throw all out in the first day, and it, it kind of—it messed with his mind a little bit because he's like, "I'm a guy coming off of major arm injuries. This is not what I expect." And I—I I think that's really a big thing about what you're doing out there—is you're kind of—you're giving guys a different approach, maybe than the, you know their high school pitching coach, their college pitching coach. It's just a really unique kind of approach, wouldn't you say?
2: Yeah, definitely. And you know, when he came here, uh, he was. So coached into the professional model. He had a really up, down, and out, very slow delivery. It's not the Casey Weathers from Vanderbilt. You know, at Vanderbilt, he was explosive. He was training under uh, the pitching coach at the time was Derek Johnson, who's now the major league pitching coach for the Brewers. uh, And his best friend is David Price. And so at Vanderbilt, that's how they train. You know, Vanderbilt uses a lot of our stuff now. And it it was always under there. He just had lost it from Pro ball because Pro ball is so – a lot of the organizations are so uh, over conservative. Oh, you know, just uh, take it easy. You don't have to throw so hard. You don't have to train so hard. Um, but it's weird to say that and then watch the playoffs and watch 20 year old after 23 year old after 25 year old come out of the pen throwing 99 miles an hour. The closer for the Blue Jays can't even legally drink, and he's throwing 98 miles an hour. It's like it's completely not, it doesn't make any sense when, you, when they watch TV. And, they, and the pitchers know that. It's just hard for them to reconcile.
1: Now, you mentioned that Casey was signed by, by Cleveland. Um, I know you have a bit of a relationship with the Indians. Mickey Calloway, their pitching coach, came out to visit you. Uh, Trevor Bauer is probably your most well-known client. Do you think the relationship with Dryline is a part of why he ended up with that team?
2: Uh, it definitely is. Yeah, you know, Trevor just he purchased a house actually out here, and he's he's here. He's staying the whole offseason, and he works out here, and Nick Hagenoan also works out here. Uh, and then, you yeah, it know, it's it's a good fit because I know a lot of the people with Cleveland. Uh, Ken Knudsen is the throwing coordinator, and he's been a friend of mine for some time. Uh, you know, Ruben, the coordinator, is on board with this stuff. And so it just seemed like a natural fit. Uh, they they liked what they had to do. Uh, the people running the farm director, you know, the farm director and the assistant farm director, both are very open-minded and young. Um, and so that, you know, it just ended up working out. You know, we don't have a bias anywhere, but if we can put a guy in a spot where player development, he's going to be embraced, that's great. And I really think um, that's something that really gets overlooked. You know, guys get drafted. And, um, you know, the reality is half the organizations you probably really want to stay away from if you train in an unorthodox method, and sad to say, but it's 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 a tough world out there, and that's what a lot of a lot of people on the internet don't see uh, the behind-the-scenes uh, footage of it.
1: Well, I think that's a really interesting point, and I, I think you've tweeted variations of this without naming names. Is you've had guys, or or maybe even friends of your clients, who see what you're doing, who work with what you're doing, and then they go back to their teams in spring training or or in the minors, and they're not allowed to continue the same kind of of training method. How do you kind of deal with that, where you're like, we really should do this, and then they're getting you know input from a not I wouldn't say like a more important area, but the, the team that's signing their paychecks essentially.
2: Right now, it's difficult. You know, a lot of them have to do it on their own. One of our clients actually has to throw uh, the weighted balls in the shower of the minor league clubhouse. He took a picture <laughs> of it. Um, and it's tough. You have to get your work in. It requires that kind of work ethic. And, and, you know, a lot of the people here, we don't take a lot of pro clients. We only we, – we do referral basis only. So the people that come in here tend to have that kind of ethic and, and you know, desire. Um, And it's tough because when you're in an organization like Cleveland or, you know, another organization that openly embraces it, it just makes your job so much easier. Um, And then when you're in an organization that's very uh, against this kind of stuff, you know, there's at least half the organizations are and some are worse than others. Uh, It's just very difficult. You know, it it makes it a battle. And that's why, you know, we're trying to perform a lot of partnerships with agencies um, and, and open their eyes to that. And I think a lot of younger agents and younger advisors are really starting to understand that the, or the, the organization they go to is worth more than a couple thousand dollars in the draft. And uh, that's what we're seeing a lot of. How,
1: how much of your job and your approach would you say? It's not so much about just changing physical training in terms of, you know, throw like this, train like that. It's also about changing mental approaches in terms of, you know, you might have been told something for the last 10 years, but we need you to unlearn that if you're going to be here and kind of, you know, start from scratch.
2: Yeah, and that's and that's difficult for anybody. But fortunately, you know, if anybody sees me, generally they're you know they're hit rock bottom or they're <laughs> in a place in their life where they're really open. And you know what what we've been able to do is really quantify a lot of that. You know, we we have a lot of tools here. We have EMG sensors that actually show muscle output. We have an emotive EEG headset that actually shows brain activity of when people are throwing we use an Oculus Rift which is really popular in the gaming community to actually show visualization of their pitching um, we say hey this is what works this is what doesn't you know we have a full pitch effects database we have trackman information and we say you know we're very privileged to have a lot of this information uh, and my background is in data science so I'm able to kind of break all this down and a guy like Trevor is going to want to know absolutely 100% of that a guy like Casey he just wants to know that I know it and then he just says all right just point me in the direction and I'll, I'll run over it you know I'll just point me in the direction give me a workout plan if you say i got to be here seven hours a day i'll do it um but they want to know at the end of the day that i'm you know it's rooted in some sort of data and not just a guess and that's and that, that's what brings comfort and um it really the dedication these guys see
1: yeah you, you touched on something interesting there in that you don't really have a traditional background like from my understanding you don't you didn't play at a high level i know you coached some some high school baseball but you know you, you didn't coach at a high level uh you are a software developer background and you, you really you got to this point just by a ton of hard work and a lot of research. And I've seen some of your blog posts where you're talking about this specific brand of camera plugged into this specific brand of that. It seems like technology is a really huge focus of your work. And I know you recently acquired a track man. Would you say that that is probably one of your biggest selling points as opposed to all these other places that are trying to teach pictures is we've got this technology that nobody else has?
2: Yeah, it's, it's a huge part. And what we've learned is how to connect that to the person. You know, a lot. I, I I'm, unfortunately, unfortunately. A few of the pitching places out there have a decent amount of technology. They have these sports science labs, but these numbers are meaningless. And what I think we do a really good job of is is making applied research. You know, we can say, hey, some places will say, like, hey, doing kinetics are this, your elbow angle is this, you can't do this, but that's not actionable. How can you coach the person who's 28 years old and has played a little bit in the big leagues and needs to get back? How can you – he's not going to change his mechanics from just cueing. He needs uh, actionable work. And by using technology to really leverage that, I think we do an excellent job there. There's a lot of things we can improve on, but that that I think we do very unique and I think we do a really good job with that.
1: Yeah, I like the term actionable because if you look around baseball, every team, every team has really smart guys in the front office, but it's the teams that can translate that to the field. Like the pirates really stand out to me. They've done a great job of taking this data, and filtering it through the coaching staff, through the players, and it's really you know, it's been one of the big things that have stood out for them on the field. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you was about obviously the last couple of years, Tommy John—it's kind of been an epidemic. People blowing out their elbows. Uh, unfortunately, some parents and coaches thinking it's actually a good thing to have in advance because it will help their children, which I think we all agree is not really a great idea. Uh, what, in your opinion, like how do we fix that? Is it—is it training? Is it making sure that pitchers aren't overworked or mm-hmm. that they're not throwing when they're fatigued? What's the like, the number one way for you we're going to fix that issue?
2: Well, I think it's it's a frustrating issue for everybody, from the pitcher to the front office to the trainer um, and to the the Internet pundit who doesn't, you know, who who talks about pitching mechanics. I think it's frustrating for all of us, and that's that's, that's the root of it. You know, unfortunately, in my my background as as a probability expert and working in data science, um, I I really do believe that there's just some percentage percentage of injuries will exist, uh, elbow injuries will exist, because we're, we're asking, we're pushing the human body to its limit. Uh, velocities are ne- have never been higher, and stress is definitely increases at a you know n- at a non-linear rate once you get to those once you get to those velocities. So injuries are going to happen no matter how well prepared you are. Uh, but I think I think the PitchSmart MLB's Pitch Smart program is a great start. It's really educating the youth players and youth coaches that overuse is not okay. That playing multiple sports is is important, um, and really having varied interests. You know, kids should not be pitching year-round. Uh, kids. No matter how much they like it, you know there, we have multiple stories from up here of kids throwing 150 plus pitches in a high school game, and it's just meaning it's just crazy, you know. And that's and so MLB's pitch Smart is a really good start for the education, but what is sorely lacking is understanding of training past that. Oh, getting to that high school, that college, that pro level. One of the biggest disconnects is that the colleges are more and more using these types of programs and seeing outstanding results like Oregon State and Vanderbilt, uh, and then kids are drafted out of those schools and everything is taken away from them. That to me represents a very large injury risk. And so pro teams, I think, could do a better job educating themselves uh, because the colleges, the changes happen at the amateur level before they happen at the professional level. Uh, And so I hope there's better communication and on ramping from there.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because if people were to ask me, you know, what's the number one reason for injuries, I think I would say that the kids who are playing 12 months a year, they're on travel teams, maybe throwing, you know, 200 innings a year at 17 or whatever the case may be, by the time they get to the pros, they might already be in trouble. They're probably already some amount of injured before they throw their first uh, pro pitch, like we saw with Brady Aiken last year.
2: Absolutely. You know, you see Dylan Bundy, right? I mean, outstanding arm, unbelievable work ethic, trained extremely intelligently as far as I can tell. Um, but was just throwing, you know, 200 pitches a game in high school. And, and for what? You know, for he was already going to be a first-rounder. Uh, and it's frustrating. It's it's, it's very difficult. Um, a kid is never going to take himself out of a game. He's always going to want to compete. And those are the guys that end up pitching professional baseball. But it has to be up to the parents and the coaches. And to, uh, to me, it's an education thing. You know, we have to do a better job. And that's why I really applaud the work of Pitchmart. I think at the younger levels, Pitchmart is a very good tool. I think applying what Pitch Smart does or says to the older population is potentially not a good idea. I think the older athletes need to train a little more, um, you know, more intensely like we talked about. Um, and, uh, but I think it's a great start. I'll say that.
1: Kyle, we uh, this year at Statcast, one of the coolest things we've come up with is spin rate. We've really seen that spin rate has an impact. If you have a high spin rate, maybe you get a lot more fastballs. At least, uh, uh, I'm sorry, you get a lot more strikeouts on fastballs. If you have a low spin rate, you tend to get ground balls. We had an interesting Twitter conversation recently about whether spin rate can be linked to elbow injury. Uh, Do you think that's true? Is there data out there that supports that?
2: You know, I think uh, the root of it is understanding where spin rate is created from. You know, I don't think we we know we don't really have a good idea of how it's generated. Uh, If it turns out that spin rate is best generated by very violent elbow extension, uh, potentially it is injurious. Um, But I think understanding the root of where it comes from, you know, it's very similar to the first start of Pitch Effects, where it first came out, everybody said, uh, this stuff is meaningless, it's very difficult to use from a scouting perspective. And then it was integrated from scouting. Okay, this guy has this type of breaking ball and moves that. Now, from a player development perspective, how can we teach them on a pitch that spins more and moves more uh, and that's where we're at with TrackMan. Once we figure out really what creates spin rate, uh, and I think we could do some more uh, some more research on that. Uh, as far as disabled list time and that, uh, you know, I think it's kind of inconclusive right now, uh, but understanding the underlying mechanism is, is super interesting and it's, it's kind of what we're looking into right now.
1: Kyle, final question. Uh, uh, the fastest pitch that we have tracked is 104 miles an hour from Aroldis Chapman. Uh, what is the fastest pitch you've recorded in your studio? And I know it's not quite the same thing as being on a mound in front of a big league audience. Uh, have you had anybody who's topped that?
2: Uh, yeah, from a running throw, we have 106.9 miles an hour by a college pitcher uh, from a running throw. So we do have that. It's the fastest pitch that we have here, like a flat ground type throw, I believe is in the low 100s. So I think it's only going to get higher as we as we move on.
1: But we basically have essentially reached the the limits of what humans can do, right? Like nobody's going to probably go in the big leagues and start throwing 105, 106, 100,
2: I don't know. I, I, you know, it's hard to say. The, the The increases have been so crazy over the last ten years. I, I think there's a real chance you might see some guys. Uh, I think we're going to see a lot more guys throwing 100 miles an hour. And I'll say that much. And then all it takes is one person who's genetically gifted, who trains the right way, and we can see a guy throwing 105 plus. I don't see any reason why there's not that. That couldn't happen.
1: Very cool. And we, we've seen year by year. Velocity keeps increasing, and I think that's a big part of why offense has gone down. Uh, Kyle Bodie, president and founder of Driveline Baseball, follow him at Driveline Bases. Very cool stuff if you're really interested in what's the next step forward as far as velocity, as far as pitcher health. Kyle, really appreciate your time. Thanks so much.
2: Thanks for having me on, Mike. Anytime.
1: Back on the MLB.com Statcast podcast, our guest right now is Corey Brock. For the better part of the last decade, he has been the MLB.com San Diego Padres beat writer. He's one of the best we have. Corey, how are you doing tonight?
3: Mike, I'm doing well, yeah. When you frame it that way, I'm like, Oh man, I've done nine years already out here. I don't I don't know where the time has gone. It adds that. it
1: adds up quickly.
3: <laughs> yeah, it has. Yeah, I'm still waiting to cover that first Padre playoff game, but uh you know, it's uh, it's been a lot of fun. to get to work with a lot of good people and uh, yeah i'm excited to uh, be on the podcast
1: well i'm not sure everybody totally understands what the padres uh, game plan is this winter but i think what we can say for certain is over the last year they've become much more prominent in the the national baseball scene last year obviously they made all the trades for uh, matt kemp and they traded for kirk krimble and they signed signed shields and they got justin Upton and all this stuff and uh you know the season didn't go very well and so now they're coming back for a.j Preller's second year and uh my question to you is are they buyers or are they sellers? It, it's a little uncertain. Most teams, you can say they're definitely going for it. They're definitely not going for it. They still have a lot of veteran talent, but they've also traded uh, Craig Kimbrell. They traded Joaquin Benoit. What is their plan this offseason?
3: Yeah, this certainly gives the appearance, Mike, that they are um, maybe selling and trying to recoup some pieces for that minor league system that, I won't say they completely tore down or raided is the word I like to use, that uh, Last year when A.J. Preller used some assets in the Padres minor league system to go after some major league ready pieces. You mentioned Matt Kemp, Justin Upton, Derek Norris, Will Myers. You know, the list goes on and on. Now, in just in the past week or so, they've moved Joaquin Benoit, Craig Kimbrell. They've saved about, well, I don't know, $17, $18 million off payroll. uh gotten some very interesting pieces sort of to restock that farm system or help restock it, I should say. So it sort of gives the appearance to an outsider that, hey, okay, maybe they're going to batten down the hatches here and take a step back to take a step forward. I'm not so sure, to be honest with you. I don't think that's how A.J. Preller operates. Um, This guy's got four more years on his deal. I think he would like to – you know, he's a a very competitive guy, um, especially if you ever played basketball with him, which I haven't. Um, I've heard he is super, super competitive, and I think a lot of that bleeds over – Into his professional life as well. And, you know, I think they want to win here. They have an all star game in 2016. I think they're gearing up to make some minor league moves. I'm sorry, some moves in free agency that can help the team. And we certainly know his proclivity to uh, being active in the trade market. I don't think this is a complete picture of what the Padres are or what they will be in 2016. I think, Mike, if you and I are having this conversation in two months, we probably have seven or eight different other topics to go over. I think. Uh, they're gearing up to make a couple moves here. I don't know how notable, and I don't know how much money they have to spend, but I think A.J. Cruller is just getting started.
1: I think last year when they, quote-unquote, and I'm, you can't see me, but I'm using giant air quotes here with my fingers, <laughs> won, won the off season with all their big moves, uh, one of the things that stood out to me was that they didn't really do anything about that infield. Uh, and The infield was kind of rough at the beginning of the season. It stayed that way all season. And if the season started today... The infield would be Yonder Alonso, Corey Spangenberg, Judd Solarte, maybe Will Motorbrooks. That can't be the infield we're going to see on opening day
3: 2016. No, uh, not for uh, offensive gains or certainly defensive uh, gains. You know, they, they struggled on both ends with those guys. So, with the exception of Solarte at third, I think he was a, one of the more unnotable surprises. That certainly doesn't fit that profile of. You know, the third baseman from years gone by, a guy that's going to hit for a lot of power, driving a lot of runs. But I think he's a nice ball player. I think he's a really nice ball player, especially for uh, what you're paying him. Um, So I think he's fine there. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. A lot of uh, pieces need to sort of be addressed. What are you going to do at first base? Is Will Myers going to end up there? Um, I think uh, because Myers can play left, Um, and can play first I think it gives them some flexibility in terms of free agency and trades as to who they need to go out and get or how they want to address that but a shortstop oh Mike it's been a big dilemma here I wrote a story about it today I think they've had 18 different shortstops since 2009 uh, that I've sort of chronicled Uh, it's been a revolving door since uh, Khalil Green was moved in in the deal uh, years ago so I think they'd like to address that and find an answer, even if it's a short-term fit until Javier Guerra, who they picked up from the Red Sox, is ready to reach the big leagues probably in a couple years. So, yeah, I can't imagine the infield looks anything like it did. In 2015.
1: Well, I you know I think it'd be a fun pub trivia game for you to go around the bars of San Diego and ask people to name those 18 shortstops that have played since 2009. Because if anybody can name more than two or three off the top of their head, I think I'd be very surprised. Uh, I want to go back to the the Kimbrel trade for a second because last year when they got him on the eve of opening day, I think people were were stunned and they're like, "This is great." You know, based on all the trades they made, this is the guy that tops it off, and I I didn't love it so much because they already had a good bullpen, and I didn't think he was going to make that big of a difference. And it turns out maybe he didn't. But this trade they just made now with Boston, I think, is really fascinating because they probably got more than they gave up. And if you look at what they gave up, a big part of it was for not having, or it was for not having Atlanta have to pay for BJ Upton. Now Melvin Upton. Uh, and if you look at him, he actually had a surprisingly decent year in San Diego. His exit velocity in June and July, 85 miles an hour, 82 miles an hour, not so great. 91 in August, 93 in September. Second half of the year, he hit the ball pretty hard. What did you see from him? Is that just a, a couple of months, or is he actually going to be a useful player going forward?
3: I, you know, I, you're right about Melvin. I think he sort of gets a, a, a bad knock here locally and from the fan base because a lot of fans just can't get over that contract, and I understand that. But yeah, he was a nice he was a nice little piece for them. I remember, you know, he had the uh, the foot issue in spring training with the Braves. His return to the big leagues was delayed until what around June or so, and it took him a while to get going. But you know, I think he's a useful piece. This is a guy that can still go get a ball out in center field. I think that has a lot of value in these big NL West uh, outfields. Um, and yeah, yeah, he squared a few balls up and he did fine. And I thought. You know, if they were looking at this for 2016, you know, they got to look at the rookie uh, Travis Jankowski, uh, left-handed batter during the month of September, that maybe they sort of envisioned this as a, uh, some sort of workable platoon situation if Jankowski hit enough. So I think, yeah, I think Upton's got a, a spot on this team. Um, we'll, we'll just have to remain to be seen, at, you know, whether he can uh, continue to, you know, I don't know if he could ever get back to those, Numbers that he had with the with the Rays. I mean, they they weren't great, but they were they were pretty good. Uh, that that contract really needs to be looked at. I think someone needs to go back and uh, get into that a little bit more, whether that was justified. But you know, that's a different story. But I think yeah, I think he's a useful piece, and um, yeah, certainly you're not going to find anyone to pawn him off on. So I, I think he's okay here.
1: Yeah, and the fact that whether he hits or not, that he can play a good center field, I think is really important for this team. Because if you look back last year, you see Upton and left, and Myers and center, and Kemp and right, at least that was the idea. And I think a lot of people had concerns the outfield defense in that ballpark wasn't going to be that great. And that's essentially what ended up happening. And so now uh, the new manager is Andy Green, who comes over from Arizona, where he really pioneered the shifting that they did in Arizona. And they were one of the better defensive teams in baseball. And it wasn't entirely due to the shift. They have guys like Enciarte out in the outfield who were very good, uh, Pollock, But uh, that's something that I think you're going to be writing about at MLB.com this week, that he's planning to bring the shift to San Diego, and maybe that can help some of the defense.
3: Yeah, and and the Padres have have done a pretty good job of that, and they've increased the amount of shifting they've done just in the last couple years. But, yeah, you're right. The Diamondbacks really weren't doing a whole lot of this at all, Mike. Andy Green was able to come in last year and implement a lot of that and get a lot of guys, infielders and pitchers. Uh, to, to buy into what he wanted to do there. Hey, they were first in the big leagues in defensive run saved by a huge margin. They had 71. The Royals were second with 56. And to put this in frameworks, because you touched upon the uh, uh, the Padres' woeful defense, I think they were minus 28 last year. So a lot of the problems that people suspected were going to happen defensively truly really played out that way. So, um, and I know the two don't always correlate together, but I think they're, they're, the thought process was that uh, AJ Preller? AJ Preller really liked that Andy Green was receptive and open to new ideas and new concepts, and that he sort of took it upon himself to, uh, you know, develop this, implement this, uh, working with, you know, who, who knows? You know, the, the the BIS information I think he really uh, sunk his teeth into, and uh, they did some really good things there to, to help that pitching staff. And you know, this is one of the areas that teams can make some gains at uh, without it. You know, actually going out and addressing the roster, you know, bringing in defensive-minded defensive-minded players, you could you could do some tweaks here and there. You could have these guys moving, actually, even from pitch to pitch, um, to try and uh, pick up some gains there. And certainly, they saw a big benefit in Arizona.
1: Well, I look forward to your piece on that uh, this upcoming week. So, Andy Green is obviously not necessarily a big name as a manager. Uh, I thought it was interesting that if you go back to last year's coaching staff, uh, after Bud Black was let go. Dave Roberts, who's the bench coach, did not get the chance to to fill in. They called up Pat Murphy from the minors. And then after a season, they didn't interview Dave Roberts for the job at all. And now he's one of the two finalists, along with Gabe Kapler, for the Dodgers job. What is it you think about Dave Roberts? And I know he's very respected around baseball. Why didn't he get a look at San Diego?
3: Yeah, He might be the nicest human being, Mike, in the history of <laughs> human beings. Um, I mean, a really wonderful person. And, uh, you know, I never really quite understood that. I know there was a fear... You know, at the time when they um, when Bud black was dismissed that you know there was a fear that you know with Craig Council taking over in Milwaukee and uh, he having played for Pat Murphy that maybe Murph was going to get an opportunity to go there and they didn't want to you know roadblock him by any means but I think they wanted to take a look and see what they had there I think there was something about Pat Murphy that resonated with AJ Preller, some sort of energy remember this guy was a former college coach and uh, you know it just didn't it didn't work out on a lot of different fronts and you know they dismissed him an hour after the season was over but you know i don't know why doc never really got a uh, a fair look there i shouldn't say a fair look or he just got an opportunity to uh, why not turn it over to him because i will say this mike i i, I think what happened when you when the team dismissed bud black highly respected especially in that clubhouse uh, I think the team was just kind of in a collective funk and kind of sleepwalking for about three weeks. And I, that really hurt them. Remember, there were only a game under 500 when Black was uh, dismissed. So, you know, I think it would, might have been a, a much easier transition. I, I'm certain it would have been if you would have let uh, Dave Dave Roberts step in or even Mark Kotze, um, you know, a guy with Padre ties, who's very well-respected as well. But, no, I, I don't know. I, maybe it's that, that Doc had um, – maybe uh, the perception he was aligned too closely with Bud Black and they just completely wanted to go in a different direction with this. And we've seen this before with general managers, um, or, you know, you know, with you know, these upper management that brings in its own people, you want your own guy in there. So, uh, I, I think it's afforded Dave the opportunity to, uh, interview in Seattle. And I heard he was a finalist there and, uh, maybe he'll get this Dodgers job, but you know, a very good baseball man, uh, highly respected, very energetic. I mean, like like if you're going to run through a wall for a guy, to use that tired old, old cliche, it's probably Dave Roberts, and I think he would be a wonderful fit in Los Angeles.
1: Well, that that's high praise. Um, and going back to the coaching staff, and do correct me if I have the timeline wrong here, uh, pitching coach Darren Balsley, who's one of the most respected pitching coaches in the game, he was actually retained before they hired Andy Green, the new manager, which is a little interesting because usually the manager gets to pitch his staff uh, pick his staff, excuse me. And I think that's because Bosley has had such success with a whole bunch of pitchers have come through. And what's really interesting to me is that he's focused for a couple years now on spin rate. And I know we talked about this on Twitter a little bit. Chris Young, when he was back there years ago, had a very high fastball spin rate, which we saw come up again in the World Series with Kansas City. That was one of the reasons he gets all these fly balls. Uh, Nick Vincent, you wrote about him last year. High fastball spin rate, 200 RPM over the league average. He only throws 89, 90 miles an hour, but he's got 161 strikeouts and 150 innings pitched. Is this just Darren Bosley who looks at spin rate, or do you think that's maybe how the, the front office is selecting some of these pitchers?
3: Yeah, I think they've had, they've looked at this data for, for quite a while. Um, certainly, probably longer than we have been talking about it, you know, a lot of that information, which is wonderful now. We're able to get our hands on or at least be able to find out a little bit more about this. And the cat's kind of out of the bag a little bit. But, yeah, you know, and it's funny because Darren Balsley is kind of a, in some regards, he's kind of an old school pitching coach. I mean, his one of his mentors was Mel Queen, uh, who was with the uh, with the Blue Jays so many years ago. He's passed on now. But, um, you know, and Darren took a lot of things from his time with Mel and kind of developed some old school uh, you know kind of fundamentals and a, a guy that could really spot any you know a fix or something that needs to be fixed even between innings from pitch to pitch and we've seen this time and time again out, uh, time and time again out here and just very astute but um, not afraid to embrace some of this uh, uh, the new analytics or the information that's uh, presented to him and uh, the high spin rate stuff really you know caught my eye and uh, when he mentioned this a few years ago, because I'll be honest with you, Mike, I had no idea what the hell that meant, <laughs> but it's uh but it makes complete sense, especially when you see it uh, from guys like Chris Young and you're able, you're kind of wondering like, how, how is this guy doing this? You know um, now, he's a different pitcher now than he was with the Padres. I think he had a little bit more fuzz back then. Um, certainly he's in his mid thirties now, or even past 35, but uh, Uh, Yeah, just a a great story with Chris Young, a guy, you talk about perseverance, um, a guy that's kind of been through a lot and kind of reinvented himself to some degree. But, uh, yeah, Darren Balsley has had a hand in a lot of different careers. I did a big profile on him uh, about a year or so ago, and Jake Peavy essentially saying I wouldn't be anywhere the, the pitcher I am right now without Darren Balsley. He helped me that much.
1: Well, Petey is, uh, we just looked at the list recently, actually, doesn't throw all that hard anymore, but he's got a very high spin rate. And so that's really where a lot of his strikeouts are coming through. So that makes perfect sense that he would have gotten along so well with uh, Darren Balsley. Corey, final baseball question. We are coming up on the one-year anniversary of the big Matt kemp Yasmani Grandal trade. Uh, and at the time that trade was made last year, I know a lot of Dodger fans were not thrilled because Grandal hit 225, and he had previously been suspended for PEDs, and Matt Kemp obviously was somewhat of a hero in L.A., how do you feel about that trade a year later? Grandel had a really good season in L.A. before he got hurt. Kemp had a pretty lousy first half but was very good in the second half. What does that look like to you now?
3: That's a great question because, yeah, yeah, the Grandall stuff with, with, with the injury and he had the, uh, had a concussion as well, didn't he too, Mike, had
1: last uh, year with the Dodgers? He, uh, yeah, but maybe more than one. He, he got hit a lot, and then uh, when he hurt his shoulder, yeah. it was actually on a foul tip. So he got beat up really bad.
3: And then he couldn't get a hit for like months. Six months hits. On end, six hits.
1: Much, right. Six hits from August sixth to the end of the season, which yeah. is atrocious. But before that, he was the best hitting catcher in baseball in the first half, and he was the best pitch framing catcher as well.
3: Absolutely, and I think that there's a lot of value uh, in Yasmani Grandal. And I, I don't know; it's hard to say. You know, like I, I don't know exactly. You know, with the uh, the PED suspension, if um, how well he sort of endeared himself to other players in the clubhouse, and I don't know if that was a, an issue uh, that led to his, uh, that, you know, partially led to the trade. But I know, you know, A.J. Preller, um, you know, he has Dodger ties. Logan White, who's his, one of his right-hand men, have Dodger ties, as does Don Wilkie, uh, you know, looking for a, a run producer, uh, someone that can kind of help spark something. And certainly Matt Kemp's second half of 2014. I mean, those are stunning numbers, uh, and, you know, knowing that you know this guy was kind of dinged dinged up, a little hurt. And then in the second half, suddenly this guy's like one of the best players in baseball again. So I, th- I think that fed a lot into their evaluation of the guy. Um, yeah, I'm curious to see where this goes, to be honest with you. I, they they need more from Matt Kemp in 2016. Mike, this guy hit – he had one home run in the first two months of the season. And, uh, you know, that that's just not going to cut and That's part of the reason that Padres – uh were in the hole that they were. I won't place all of this on his shoulders, but you know, I, I still I, I don't know what I think of the
2: trade. I don't
3: I, I just I always look at the back end of these deals and look at the numbers and get a little scared. Well the industry's changing now and maybe a lot of teams aren't so worried about the back end of those contracts, especially with the influx of money in the game. So I don't know. I don't know if the Padres are just as high on Matt Kemp as they were the you know, early on. His second half wasn't that bad. Uh, RBIs certainly aren't the best measure of a uh, a hitter's prowess by any means but he was a better run producer in the second half I'll give him that but they need to find a way to get him going in April
1: Corey final non-baseball question you identify yourself in your Twitter profile as a beer aficionado favorite beer of the moment
3: oh favorite beer of the moment there is a uh, there's a stout that uh, a local brewer here in San Diego and and, and I'm lucky to live in one of the Probably one of the best beer meccas of in America, if not the world. Really, it's called Speedway Stout, and it's just really smooth. And the, the problem is, Mike, it's 12. So,
1: <laughs> is that a problem?
3: <laughs> what, what, not if you're sitting in your couch at home with no, uh, with my two-year-old twins are fast asleep upstairs. But uh, no, it's uh, it, it's really smooth, and it's you know some of those those beers with the the high ABV. Um, can kind of really sneak up on you because especially the ones that aren't super boozy, but, you know, I guess mostly because we're kind of in uh, what's perceived to be fall slash early winter here. According to the calendar, I think it was like 75 degrees here today. So uh, it feels like kind of, it's, it's supposed to be stout weather. So I'm going to, I'm going to say right now speedway stout is the beer for me.
1: Well, I'm not familiar with that one, but I am going to have to seek it out. I can tell you that I have a San Diego beer in my fridge at home right now, which is stone, which I'm sure you're familiar with because I'm a big fan of that uh cory brock mlb.com beat writer for the san diego padres really appreciate your time follow him at at follow the padres Corey, thanks so much for your time appreciate it
3: yeah mike that was fun thanks again
1: thank you to my guest kyle bode uh president and founder of driveline baseball doing very cool stuff with pitcher health and velocity Corey brock mlb.com padres beat writer this has been the mlb.com Stackcast podcast i'm your host mike petriello i uh, see you next week